Hello, my name's Catherine Griffiths, the editor of The Lawyer. And I'm Christian Smith, the litigation editor at The Lawyer. Welcome to The Lawyer Podcast, your fortnightly guide to the news that's moving the UK legal market. This is the second ever episode of the podcast, complete, as you may have noticed, with new music. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. If you're a second time listener, thanks for coming back. And thanks for all your lovely emails as well. Yes, indeed. We really appreciated them all. Now, just a quick bit of admin before we start. You can always find out more about the stories we cover on the podcast at thelawyer.com. And all of your comments or suggestions about the show are indeed more than welcome. Please just email podcast at thelawyer.com. We do have a jam-packed show for you this episode. Cryptocurrency, which is of course never far from the news these days, has had a shocker of a week. We'll break down what the collapse of the exchange FTX means for what is one of the country's fastest growing litigation specialities. We're six months into what was billed as an extremely tough financial year, but was it? How are law firms faring? We'll find out. Last week as well, the lawyer revealed that Anglo-Scottish corporate boutique Dixon Minto was in talks with New York firm Fred Frank. We ask, are transatlantic mergers back? But first, are you excited? Because you should be. It's just a few days until the Football World Cup. Now, major sporting events are often an opportunity for law firms to shine. Freshfield sponsored the Olympics in 2012, Gowling the Commonwealth Games, and Eversheds had the Rugby League World Cup. But for the Football World Cup in Qatar, the state's stance on issues like gay rights means that firms won't want to make much capital out of it. Indeed, it's highlighted broader ethical issues for those firms operating in the country. Alex Taylor is the lawyer's international editor and conveniently our unofficial football correspondent. And he's with us now. AT, here we are on the eve of the World Cup. And the thorny issue that firms can't avoid will be how this all sits with their ESG agendas, isn't it? Well, in a word, yes. Uh, you'd have to have been living under a rock to have missed the allegations of corruption in the bidding process. Uh, more pertinently to the law firms themselves, the huge push to build the right kind of infrastructure to host the tournament has been dependent on massive amounts of migrant labour. We don't know how many people have died in the construction of these stadiums, but most estimates run well into the thousands. Then you have the question of Qatar's views on gay rights and a question of how these projects align with law firms' values really does begin to become quite tricky. Well, indeed. Um, I think we can assume that when stated values are pitted against uh, commercial opportunities and existing client relationships, the value side will probably lose out. Um, Or I may be being a bit cynical. Um, But let's get a bit granular here. Who actually has offices in Doha now? Now, has it actually been a big focus for international law firms? Qatar's a really small market. Uh, Among the larger firms present in Doha, we've got Kleinco, DLA Piper, uh, Simmons & Simmons, White & Case, uh, arguably the biggest US firm there. Um, Most offices max out at around 10 to 12 people, and it's a market that's largely dominated by constructions, by projects, uh, arbitration work, if you're going to take it from the contentious side as well. It isn't a huge lateral market either. Uh, Crowlin Mooring's 13-lawyer team hire from Squire Patton Boggs in 2020 led to the latter's Doha office closure. And that was probably the most significant team hire in recent memory. Really, that kind of says everything that you'd need to know about how active this market is. One recruiter I spoke to described it as really only ever being drips and drabs. 
Um, and it isn't even like the promotion side of these firms is much better either. Seven of the top 30 UK firms have an office in Qatar. Between them, they've made nine promotions in the last decade, less than one a year. So that is a low growth market. Therefore, so what's next for Qatar? This, the whole of the World Cup investment is about aggressive nation building. Um, and Qatar is, I mean, it's going to keep calling on international law firms to back its commercial growth in the future. So what do you think the post-World Cup economy looks like, for both for Qatar and for the firms that want to be active in it? Well, I completely agree. And what's going to be really interesting is how Qatar defines itself after the World Cup. It's a tiny state that's mega wealthy because of its enormous gas reserves, and so those natural resources are key to what currently defines it. And, in the short term at least, its liquid natural gas reserves are still super valuable. But, as we're speaking here right now, COP27 is happening. That's indicative of a world that's trying to move away from its reliance on fossil fuels. In the immediate aftermath of the World Cup, the obvious things to look out for will likely be this huge volume of litigation coming out of the infrastructure and construction work that we've already spoken about and has all of the associated problems that have plagued this competition's organisation since it was first announced. Of course, Quinn Emanuel opening up in Doha is indicative of that. But even then, I think for international firms, Qatar is a is a distant fourth behind Riyadh and Dubai and Abu Dhabi. I mean, will the World Cup actually change law firms' minds on committing resources to, to the state? I'd be surprised to see that. Um, what Qatar really has to do is find its USP in the Middle Eastern professional services economy. What does Qatar have that Riyadh doesn't, that Dubai doesn't, that Abu Dhabi doesn't? I think the proposed changes in Saudi to move away from the association model to a fully-fledged joint venture setup will ensure that's where most of the largest firm's attention is going to be. As Latham, among others, has proved, um, it closed its office in Doha in 2015. And I think what Latham has really shown from that is that one's absence from Doha is not necessarily an impediment to getting work from Qatar's investment authority. Uh, And to bring it back to the ethical note that we started this item with. I mean, the issue of women's rights and gay rights and big oil hasn't stopped firms from investing in a Saudi presence. Um, And I think it would be naive to imagine that firms will therefore hesitate over Doha for ethical reasons. They just probably won't PR it, that's all. AT, thank you. The collapse of cryptocurrency exchange FTX has kept commentators occupied for the last week, and the lawyers have been busy too, Court documents suggest that the exchange platform, which filed for bankruptcy last week, could have more than a million creditors filing claims. The exchange's collapse is grabbing the attention of the UK's rapidly expanding crypto legal market. Senior litigation reporter at The Lawyer, Adam Mawadi, has been looking into the issue for our new weekly litigation content, The Hearing, your insider's guide to the UK litigation market. Adam, when things kind of go wrong in the world, litigation then happens. The FTX collapse is a big thing that's gone wrong. What does that now mean for litigation? Well, you've seen that in the headlines, I mean, it, it's a colossal downfall of um, what was one of the world's largest cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, it, it, it's, it's too early to fully understand if and how um, liquidity was mismanaged and, and, and fraud then combined to, to force um, FTX's bankruptcy. However, litigators we're talking to um, are expecting years of follow-on litigation from this. A um, couple examples, um, you can expect claims from high-profile institutional investors, um, lenders, including venture funds and private equity houses. 
Uh, you can also expect claims from institutional and retail investors with assets uh, stuck on the on FTX and can't get them back. Now they're trying to recoup losses. Um, if you possibly bunch them together, you can get it um, in a third-party funded class action. Um, and FTX is it has filed for bankruptcy. So if you can't uh, recoup damages from FTX, then perhaps um, you can direct litigation towards officers and directors of FTX over perhaps um, alleged misrepresentation, I mean, mismanagement. Um, and if not them, then any, anybody else who played their part in FTX's downfall. I mean, from a legal perspective, it's such an interesting market as well, because it's, it's, it's sort of booming and it has grown so much in the last few years. I mean, who are the lawyers that are actually working on crypto? Like, where do they come from? Or do they kind of spring out of the ground out of nowhere as crypto lawyers born and bred? Well, ac- across the city, you're already seeing lawyers um, step up and um, try to capitalize on the rise of crypto disputes in the market. You've got, um, for example, Osman Clark, RPC, Stewart's, Essex Court Chambers, and 20 Essex. The reason why I name them is because they're founding members of uh, the Crypto Fraud and Asset Recovery Network, um, which was designed to, to develop the best practices for crypto disputes. That's an example of the type of litigators out there. Um, but but, the, but there are other lawyers which can uh, capitalize on um, the F- FTX collapse, um, particularly reg- regulatory lawyers. Um, so FTX collapse is expected to accelerate regulation over crypto, um, which will hopefully provide confidence to institutional and retail investors. Um, and who knows, it might even increase the market value of crypto assets, which during this year um, have fallen and rem- remained relatively low. Um, so once that regulation comes in, it will keep uh, regulatory lawyers pretty busy, I'd say. Adam, thank you. We move now to take a look at the financial state of the legal market. The end of October marked the halfway point for the current financial year. Yes, and words like inflation and recession are already hanging around like a bad smell. But after a booming 2021, revenues are generally up so far this year. The lawyer's deputy news editor Jessica Boak has been looking into how law firms are faring as the economy struggles around them. And she joins us now from our northern hub in Leeds. Jess, thanks very much for being here. Uh, How are firms doing across the country? Well, I mean, for the first half of the current financial year, I think everyone has pretty much said they're on track. That's that's the phrase that keeps popping up at the moment. So that goes for the firms at the very top of our UK 200, all the way through to independents and smaller firms. So a lot of people have been saying they're about 10% up on last year's results. I think the people at the reporting the biggest growth are maybe looking about 16% revenue. Um, additional 16% revenue on last year's results. And yeah, those firms are from the mid-tier, so Capsticks, Kingsley, Napoli are all doing well. Smaller firms like Clarion, Chatterton's, but also some up in the top 20 firms are also also on track. It seems a very vanilla first half of the year, I think, is the best way to put it. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, considering the kind of doom and gloom you hear around us, and we've been hearing it mm. for a while, I mean, it, it's kind of comforting to hear that it's a bit vanilla. I mean, vanilla yeah, is what yeah. we need right now. Exactly. I mean, the, for, the, for the growth that's happening for those firms, where's it, where's it coming from? Which teams are being the most productive? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if growth is maybe the best word to use here, but the the 
sort of teams that are continuing to be busy at least are well number one litigation and restructuring as well is starting to pick up and then obviously you have some recession proof areas such like wills trust probate any sort of private client work really it's, the, it's interesting it's interesting as well sorry to, to cut yeah, there, just, on. It's, it's interesting as well just because it, it, on that litigation front you know i mean litigation has sort of developed um as you know you can look at our uk litigation 50 that comes out this week um if you mm. want to learn more about that but uh, the litigation sort of developed into this no longer being such a counter cyclical business which kind of busy all the time but that doesn't mm -hmm. mean that it's not going to get busier um uh, w w when a recession comes along because naturally you know people have to respond to, to companies not being able to pay their bills and that mm. means restructuring and that means litigation so it's it's kind of um, there's only one way that that part of disputes is going to head at the moment, it seems. Profits, though, they're facing a little bit of a squeeze, aren't they? Yes, definitely. That's why I said that growth is kind of the wrong word to use at the moment. I think people are saying that revenues are about 10% up. But I mean, inflation at the moment is something like 11.1%. So really, you need to be doing much better than 10% if you want to be considered successful. I mean, I'm no economist or mathematician or anything. But if you consider how costs of rising salaries, inflation, all of that, I mean, surely you need to be doing about 20% better in revenue this year in order for, you know, being able to do the 10% growth you did last year. It's quite amazing as well, particularly considering how many, you know, London firms in particular did so well last year. Mm. And yet again, they're kind of growing again, but with inflation and everything else, you know, there's still questions on, is that enough? I mean, look, final yeah. question. We've had the first half of the financial year. We're now having the second half. What are firms expecting, do you think, at the back half of the year? Well, I think for the rest of this year, there's not going to be much difference as to the first half of the year. Um, everyone, as I said, have already said they're on track for the targets they set for the current financial year. But a lot of people have said that the real question is going to be how 2023-24 looks that financial year. So one firm leader highlighted quite an obvious point that actually firms are usually last to feel the impact of, um, you know, the economic climate, it, climate, it's usually their clients that feel it first. And obviously that knocks onto the law firms when they want to, you know, um, build them or whatever. And we also don't know how deep the recession is going to be yet. It's not actually technically begun. So uh, all of that, there's quite a few questions, uncertainty in the air at the moment. So I think the rest of this financial year is going to be, you know, not a lot of drama, but it's definitely going to be, I think, the year after that, where we might see um, a lot more activity and, uh, you know, a few of those questions will begin to be answered. So, yeah, I hate to say it depends, like a lot of lawyers seem to say that, don't <laughs> they? But um, yeah, it, it, it kind of does at the moment. <laughs> Jess, that's that's quite all right. I mean, you and I are used to hearing it depends when we speak to lawyers, so you yep. know they can hear it now too. Jess Boke <laughs> in Leeds, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Moving on, last week the lawyer revealed that Anglo-Scottish corporate boutique Dixon Minto was in talks with New York firm Fried Frank. There's been plenty of these mergers over the years now, but the same question persists. Are UK firms inevitably going to have to succumb to Yankee advances? Joining us to discuss is our Daily Horizon editor, Katie Dowell. Kat, Katie, I mean, you're the experts here. What's all this about? Is there a bigger backstory? Oh, there is a lot to unpack here about Dixon Minto. But um, 
Uh, before we leap into that, I think for the benefit of listeners who are new to the legal market, it's worth recapping the rationale for these transatlantic takeovers in the first place. So, Katie, over to you. Now, why might a UK firm want to merge with Americans? I suppose for a UK firm, the, the rationale is, is quite simple. A US merger gives you access to a vast economy and consequently, it's much larger client pool. And that means a much wider flow of mandates. And it doesn't really matter if those are commercial or litigation. All that does is help to raise revenues here in the UK market. Now, for a US firm, a merger with a UK firm gives you a ready-made city practice, which obviously is the uh, most important legal market outside of the States. But there are a lot of other questions that these mergers throw up, like um, whether there's a commercial or a, a cultural fit, which side has the ultimate power, and what would be the likely outcome, especially if it's a defensive deal. There are many questions about the advantages of a transatlantic deal. And and actually, that brings us back to Dixon Minto. Um, and it's one of the it's one of the last corporate boutiques standing. It's really small. It's just got 24 partners, only seven partners in London. Um, and it's a bit of a throwback to a time of really personal deal making because its roots are in the very highly networked Edinburgh investment community. And it was a very, very early mover in private equity. It's always been a bit of anomaly, an anomaly and it's a bit of a jewel, actually. Um, so why why is Dixon Minto talking to a US firm? Um there are, well, there's an internal factor and there's an external factor. So culturally, there's a major succession issue here because the founders of the firm have stepped back and there are big decisions to be made about the future. And externally, the client landscape has changed hugely in the past 10 years. Um, if you look at its two signature clients, Charterhouse Capital Partners has slowed its activity in recent years. Um, and on the other hand, BC Partners, uh, one of its really major, major clients has gone global. And BC Partners is using US firms because the financing of private equity deals is largely written under New York law. So when the shape of the client market changes, it's left Dixon Minto with very little strategic choice, but to do a US deal, even if culturally, they're actually closer to Slaughter and May or Travis Smith. So to go back to your point earlier, Katie, this would definitely be filed under a defensive deal for mm. sure. And actually, the question for UK firms is actually what extent you can dictate terms to particular US suitors. Yes, and that's a very pertinent question for BCLP right now, which, as you may know, is celebrating the five-year anniversary between US-based Brian Cave and UK's um, Bowen Leighton Paisner, but it hasn't been an easy time for either, for in particular, for the BLP end. We expect to see partner departures when any big merger goes through, especially around the time of the deal as firms try to find that cultural alignment that we were talking about earlier and investment pipelines are tend to be shifted around. But the issue that's facing BACLP right now is that those departures are continuing almost five years after the deal was done. So although there's been the hire of five partners in the UK last year, this year, sorry, what our data shows is that there has been 19 partner exits so far here in the UK. And that comes on top of the 16 who left last year. Overall, that shows a net decline. And new partners, of course, take time to bed in. So recruitment's going to take a bit of a while. And uh, for there to be 19 partners leaving in a year, 
raises some serious questions about the integration happening between the two firms. I mean, is this an example of a lame duck merger? I mean, partners partners are either voting with their feet because they don't buy the management vision or they're being edged out because their practices don't fit. But as you say, it's a, it's a net decline either way. Look, transatlantic mergers aren't easy. Even Hogan Lovells, which is now 12 years old and considered to be a huge success, had some teething problems in the first few years. But BCLP can't afford to dither either. Cultural incurrence is already putting pressure on the revenues here in the UK. It looks to me that if you are entering a deal for defensive reasons, as BLP did, it actually does not mean safety. And and there's a big contrast here with a strategically offensive deal. So um, mm. you might think of Evershed's merger with Sutherland being one, um, and A&O's talks with O'Melveny were another. Uh, and, um, and by the way, if Alan Overy ever does merge with Sherman and Sterling, which has been the persistent rumour for many a year, um, A&O, A&O would definitely be the dominant partner um, in that in that particular relationship. Um, but actually, uh, thinking about it, actually most of the merger activity that we've seen uh, has been domestic in the last few mm. years. So, so, so why do you think that US deals have fallen so much out of favour? I suppose the answer to that is that uh, all firms endure some kind of turbulence when they merge, whatever size of the deal, whether it's UK or, or transatlantic. The real question is whether the partnership is willing to stand that turbulence for a sustained period of time as they go through that kind of cultural alignment and the look at the investment pipelines. Yeah, and actually from what you're saying, uh, Katie, the choice for many UK firms in that case is you know, keep independent and manage a comfortable decline or, you know, throw your hat in the ring, have a transatlantic deal and experience quite unpleasant turbulence. Um, And actually neither option is particularly attractive for, for many. Katie, thank you very much. Thank you. That's all we've got time for on this episode of The Lawyer Podcast. We will be back again in two weeks. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at podcast at thelawyer.com And of course, you can find out more about everything we've been discussing at thelawyer.com. Until the next podcast, goodbye. goodbye.